Uh, this is the epistle, um, a letter of Paul to the church in Rome, and he's writing to believers, and Romans is considered the preeminent New Testament text on, on salvation, right? If you were to think of one book in the New Testament, one letter in the New Testament, that this is the one we want to go to to explain salvation by grace through faith, this, you'd probably think of Romans, uh, a, a book that is well known. We know the doctrine of justification, the, the gospel is laid out very systematically by Paul in chapters 1 through 11, and uh, there's lots that can be said in those chapters. But Paul kind of makes a pivot. He pivots in chapter 12, and in chapter 12 through 16, Paul lays out the gospel's practical outworkings. Okay, so this is true because this is true because this is, this is the gospel. We're justified by grace through faith, not of works, right? It's just by, by faith in Christ. Now, this is how our life ought to live. That's Romans 12 through 14 on, and, or 12 through 16 on. And so we find ourselves in chapter 14 this morning, and we have to understand a little bit of the historical context to really understand the, the chapter and what's going on here. You can imagine in the early stages of the church, in the infancy of the church, that there would be people saved from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, and now all of a sudden they're a part of the body. All of a sudden they're together in the church. And so you would have had Gentile believers and you would have had Jewish believers, uh, Gentile believers whose backgrounds were in idolatry and pagan rituals. And um, there was this topic that we'll talk about a little bit here, and it's mentioned elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, this topic of meat offered to idols, right? So there's, as part of the pagan rituals, this, this meat would be offered to idols in, in the idolatrous uh, way of the, the culture there, but then that meat would be later on sold in the, the marketplace. And so there was weak Gentile believers or immature in the faith Gentile believers who would eat only vegetables, right, for the sake of their conscience. They didn't want to have anything to do with that pagan worship. They didn't want to have anything to do with the life that they were saved out of, even though it was just regular old meat. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. But then there was strong Gentile believers in that church as well who uh, knew that idols were, were nothing, that those, those gods weren't really gods. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 8, um, that they could eat the meat and, and not be sinning. But there was also Jewish believers in the church whose backgrounds were in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, uh, not only that, but uh, all the extra rules and regulations that Pharisees uh, would have would have tacked on to that. So that's their background, um, the ceremonial requirements, everything that went with that. And and there was weak or or immature Jewish believers who had difficulty leaving the requirements of the law. They had difficulty leaving that old life. They felt the need to observe certain festivals associated with Judaism, certain days that they had set apart as part of their, their culture. There were strong Jewish believers too, though, who understood that in Christ, the ceremonial requirements of the law were no longer binding on them. So the potential for conflict and for division was there. I mean, you can see that, right? People from all different walks and different thoughts and different mindsets, um, different understandings. But here's the thing. God did not preserve Romans chapter 14 for us to simply uh, know some interesting facts about the first century church. God did not preserve for us Romans chapter 14 just for us to simply uh, do a, a study of some historical context. 
He preserved Romans chapter 14 for our instruction as well as a church. And so if we think about our context, us in this room, we too are made up of individuals from different backgrounds, different life experiences, uh, different religious leanings. We too are made up of individuals with different struggles and temptations and we're uh, on a a different... um, level of maturity. We, we've, some of us have been saved for a long time and we have been able to study scripture for a long time. There's others who are maybe new believers and they have different temptations and different personal convictions. So, how are we to act in situations like this? Scripture really helps us to understand this. Um, I've titled this message, Welcome One Another. Welcome One Another. And I chose that title because Paul bookends his section here with that exhortation. In uh, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Then later, it actually goes into chapter 15, verse 7. He kind of ends his section with chapter 15 and verse 7. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that's the main idea this morning is just this idea of welcoming one another. Well, what does that mean? What does that word welcome mean? If you've got a New King James translation, uh, it might read receive one another, receive. Um, it means to accept. Um, it's even that same word is used in, in Acts for, for eating, right? Receiving food, right? So that's a, that's a very intimate thing. That's a very personal thing. That's a very relational thing. Sometimes when I think of just welcoming, I think of just a handshake. Hi, good to see you. How are you? But this is, a, this is talking about welcoming, receiving, um, bringing someone in. That's what this is talking about. So to what extent? To what extent are we to welcome one another? Well, look at verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who, pa- uh, who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. And then later on in chapter 15, in verse 7, what does it say? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So this is, this is not just a casual, um, put, a, put a fake smile on and, and greet one another, but this is a, be involved in one another's life. This is a receive one another type of exhortation. So our sermon for this morning is four reasons why we are to welcome one another. Paul lays it out in this passage, four reasons. Now, I had eight to start with. <laughs> so I had to, we had to cut it down a little bit. We're, we're covering a lot of ground here. So if I talk fast and I, I move fast, I'm sorry, but this is such an important chapter, we need to get through it. But there's, there's four things I think we want to focus on, four reasons we are to welcome one another. So let's start in uh, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but don't welcome him to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. What sticks out to me right away in verse 1 is that word opinions. Opinions. If you've got a New King James translation, it says doubtful things. Doubtful things. Not to quarrel over doubtful things. Uh, NIV, I really like what the NIV says. It says disputable matters. Not to quarrel over disputable matters. And the thing about it is, 
is there is a difference between biblical command and personal conviction. There's a difference between biblical command and personal conviction or personal opinion. Biblical command, when we're talking about things like that, or we're talking about doctrine, we're talking about truths that are, are central to the faith. We're talking about things like the, the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Christ that we get to celebrate next Sunday, uh, the substitutionary atonement, the, the inspiration of Scripture. These are, these are things that are, are central to our faith. But not just biblical doctrine. There's commands in Scripture that are explicit, commands in Scripture that, uh, that are very clear. Um, it talks about drunkenness. It talks about sexual immorality. It talks about homosexuality, greediness, enmity, and strife, and slander, and gossip. There's things, specific things, that we can point to and say, God has given us a command against this thing. So those are biblical commands, biblical doctrine, things that we must hold to. But then there's personal convictions. Then there's opinions, right? And these are the boundaries that each of us put up in our own lives to help us walk uprightly before the Lord. And, and those are good things to have. Biblical convictions are good things to have. Our opinions are good things to have if they're based on Scripture and if they're helpful for us. But we can get out of whack when our personal convictions supersede what biblical commands are, supersede what biblical doctrine is, and we hold others to our personal convictions and opinions. Um, you know, some, some Christians won't set foot in an Applebee's because uh, there's alcohol served there. Um, I know some Christians won't have anything to do with, with Halloween, so trick-or-treating uh, off the table. I'm not saying right or wrong in any of these things. I'm just saying these are personal convictions that people have, and you probably know people, maybe even this, in this room, who are on different sides of certain issues that I'm mentioning here. Um, what you wear on Sunday morning, right? I don't have a tie on, but I know in, in certain places, in some generations, that is seen as uh, something that, oh, a personal conviction of mine is that you ought to not wear jeans and you ought to dress up and, and have a tie. That's, that's a personal opinion, a personal conviction beyond Scripture. Um, kind of the thought, and maybe people don't think about this anymore, is, is it okay to mow the lawn on Sunday? Most people say, you shouldn't. It's the, the day of the Lord. It's the Lord's day. It's a day of rest. And, and so to do yard work on Sunday, that's, that's out of bounds. You can't do that. Um, not to mention movie theaters and dancing and playing cards and listening to music outside of the Christian genre. Um, maybe one more relevant. Uh, have you canceled your Disney Plus subscription yet? Right? Um, or do you shop at Target? Don't you know that Target supports this agenda or that agenda? And we can get really bogged down in uh, our own personal convictions. And it's okay to have some of those personal convictions, those boundaries that we have put up in our own lives to help us walk uprightly before the Lord. What gets murky and what gets problematic is when we start imposing those on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so why should we welcome one another? Number one is because personal opinions should not be a cause for division or a test of fellowship. Personal opinions should not be a cause for division or a test of fellowship. And he tells us in verse 3 that our tendency is, is one of two things. Our tendency is either contempt or judgment. Right, I'm going to read verse 3 again. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So it says there that the one who eats tends to despise the one who abstains. 
What does it mean to despise or to treat with contempt? It means to treat as lesser, right? It's almost this idea of unworthy of my respect, lesser, sub, subpar. And then the one who abstains tends to pass judgment on the one who who eats. So this means to carry out a verdict. That's what judgment means, to carry out a verdict. And literally, that word means to separate or to divide, to put someone in a different category. That's what judgment means. And here in this passage, we're, we're told, told about weak Christians and strong Christians. And, and so what we see right away is that the one who follows the more rigid set of rules is not necessarily the more mature Christian. That's what we see in this passage. The one who follows the more rigid set of rules is not necessarily the more mature Christian. In this case, the believers who were exercising their Christian liberty in the faith and exercising their Christian liberty in in faith and in knowledge and considering all the the possibilities, they were considered strong by Paul. And Paul identified himself with those believers. So you're thinking, okay, does that mean everything's just subjective, everything's relative, postmodern world, there is no right and wrong, you do you? Well, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. So is there a time, is there any scenario when we are called to pass judgment? I know we don't like that word, judgment. Don't be so judgy, right? But is there a time when we're called to pass judgment? And I think there is, especially given in the church context. A passage that we go to often when we're talking about this concept is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. So go ahead and flip over there if you would. And while you do that, I will subtly take a drink of water. <clears throat> Not so subtle when I announce it, right? First Corinthians chapter 5. So what's going on here? We're not going to take the time to read the whole thing, but there's an incestuous relationship happening within the church. A man has his, his father's wife, I think is how it goes, right? Um, uh, th- this relationship is happening, and it's, and it's well known in the church. And, and by all appearances, the people involved in the situation are unrepentant. Right? Actually kind of boastful about it. Actually kind of prideful and arrogant about it. And from what we see, nothing is being done about it in the church. Just kind of, eh, they're going to do what they're going to do. So let's read verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. This is Paul writing. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You're to put him out of the church. That's what it's talking about. Put him out of the church for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, that's mean. It's not mean. <laughs> it's somebody who, who is claiming the name of, of brother, saying they're a, a believer in Christ, and they're living in a way that is contrary to that. And, and it would be unloving for the church to just kind of sweep that under the rug. This, this believer, Paul's point here is not that we're condemning this person so that he's just out of our life and we don't have to deal with this issue anymore. His point here, the, the point is so that his spirit may be saved in the Lord, so that he recognizes his sin, so that he repents of his sin. And if he's not a believer, if he just professes to believer but he isn't, isn't actually a believer, that he would recognize that forsake his sin, and trust in Christ for salvation. That's the, that's the point going on here. That's the point of church discipline. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Saying, I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about within the church. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, okay, does that mean once we're a Christian, once we're a part of the church, then we no longer sin. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about unrepentant. It's talking about these things characterizing your life in an unrepentant type of, of way. By the way, we like to focus on some of those things in that list, like sexual immorality and, and drunkard. But how often do we talk about greed? How often do we talk about idolatry? It's all, it's all part of the list. We are all in need of God's grace, and hopefully we come to it with a repentant heart. So what we see here, going back to Romans chapter 14, is that when it comes to biblical command and biblical doctrine, there is absolutely a command to, to separate or to judge, if you want to use that word. But here in Romans chapter 13, it's dealing with something different. Verse 1, it's dealing with doubtful things. It's dealing with opinions. When we have disagreement regarding personal convictions, Paul's exhortation is to receive one another. Why? Verse 3, for God has welcomed him. God has received both the weak and the strong, and the exhortation to us is so should we. All right, verse 4. Let's keep going. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's such a powerful verse, right? The Lord is able to make him stand. So the mindset of the, the weaker brother was that in, in the stronger brother not observing their rules, that the stronger brother would, would fall in his faith, right? So these are my personal convictions, and if you don't hold to and practice my personal convictions, you will fall in your faith. I've got a quote here from uh, C.G. Cruz. He's a commentator, a uh, uh, a helpful commentator that I use often. He says, the error of the weak when they pass judgment on the strong is that they presume that when the strong live in the freedom the gospel provides, they will fall into sin. They fail to recognize that the Lord who establishes his servants in this freedom is able to make them stand. Now, I, uh, I worked at Costco for a year between my my senior year and going off to college, and I pushed carts, and I was good at it, right? Um, <clears throat> and the, the, there, in the break room there, there was company values, and I just remember this. I don't, I don't remember what the company values were. I just remember that they were up there, big posters, company values, and then next to that was, was something like employee guidelines, employee requirements, things like that. These, these were printed so that we could all see. And this was not something that the managers, the local managers had come up with. This is Costco corporate who had come up with these things. This is what our company is going to be about. This is, this is how the things are, right? So imagine if I walked up, took out my Sharpie, walked up to the, the company values, and I began to insert as, as the, the cart pusher my own values on what other the, the employees need to follow. So I know they've only got four here, but here's number five. I think that this, I think number six, that the, the cart pushers should receive extra pay wages, especially when it's above 90 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And I just started adding values and requirements and things onto that. Well, the, the, the 
The problem with that is I'm not the corporate manager, right? The corporate manager would look at me and say, you, you push carts, who do you think you are? And that's kind of the, the mindset here. Number two, welcome one another. Because your brother is not your servant, but God's. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Your brother is not your servant, but God's. It's just a, an amazing, amazing part of a verse here. It says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make his, him stand. So, so I, I want to be clear here. There's, there's room for imparting wisdom. There's room for giving wise counsel. And man, do we need wise counsel? Right? Those of you who have been living the Christian life for a long time and you've seen things, like we need wise counsel. There's room for that. Absolutely, we need that. But we err when we demand that our personal convictions be binding on others in the church. When we demand that our own man-made rules are the measure for a person's acceptability to God. We need to be very, very careful not to wrangle other believers into that mindset. Warren Wearsby has a, a, a fun quote here. Um, by the way, uh, I printed out his whole commentary on Romans 14, and it's on the back table there. It's called When Christians Disagree. He does a fantastic job, and, and, and it's really good, but it's not so in-depth to where you get lost in Greek, and I don't care about the Greek and the you know, participles and whatever. He's just, it's a really good commentary. I'd, I'd really recommend you read that. But he says this, the word servant here, suggests that Christians ought to be busy working for the Lord. Then they will not have the time or inclination to judge or condemn other Christians. People who are busy winning souls to Christ have more important things to do than, into, than to investigate the lives of the saints. I'll just leave that there. Uh, verse 5, let's keep going. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. But, we, but if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul just has a way of words, right? He, he kind of rises above the clouds of this issue and that issue, and what do you think about this? He kind of rises above that and says, let's honor the Lord, right? Let's honor the Lord. And I, I get excited when I read that because his priority, our priority ought to be too, the honor of the Lord. What Paul does is he drills down below the surface of the outward action and he exposes the heart. He drills down and exposes the motivations. The glory of God ought to be the motivation of every believer in every action. No matter how small or inconsequential you think an action is, your motivation ought to be the glory of the Lord, the honor of the Lord. And Paul states clearly here that a person on both sides of a particular issue could glorify God if their motivations were pure, if their motivations were for the purpose of honoring the Lord. Now, there's a funny little verse in there, verse 5. It says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What that doesn't mean is that whatever someone happens to approve is automatically right. right? The, the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 maybe thought what he was doing was okay. 
That doesn't automatically mean that it was right. So it doesn't mean that just whatever you happen to think, man, is, is right. But what it does mean is that in matters of personal conviction and Christian liberty, Paul encouraged each person to hold to their own personal convictions and practice their own personal convictions, but to do so without disdain, without judgment to a brother with different personal convictions. Do we see that? Do we see that here? I, I just feel like it's so clear. Verse 3, we, we welcome one another because we cannot assume to know people's hearts. Too often, I think, we assume to know our brother's motivations. And, and, and unfortunately, we usually assume the worst in each other. And I think that's a sad thing. Far better, far better for me to assume the best in my brother and sister, move into their lives and actually get to know them before I, I make any sort of determination about them, simply because they don't hold to my personal convictions on something. We have to be very careful there. We are not, we are not the judge. Who is the judge? Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That verse used to be up here on the wall. Verse 12. Or sorry, no, verse 12 used to be up here on the wall. We'll get there in a second. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That was, that was, was once up on the wall here at, at this church. But what's it talking about? Judgment seat. The judgment seat there. We will each be judged by God, not by each other, right? So you don't have to give an account for anyone but yourself. And uh, important to keep in mind here, our sins have been paid for. If we're a brother, if we're, a, if we're in Christ, our sins have been paid for. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. God's wrath towards your sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And that's it. You're saved. You're forgiven. Amen, right? That, that's, that, that's an exciting thing to think about, right? Our, our sins have been paid for. They can't be held against us, right? Paul talked about that in chapter 8, right? There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, that's, that's an amazing thing. So what is, this, what is this judgment seat? Well, the Greek is, is bima. Maybe you've heard of the bima seat, right? This is where our works will be weighed and rewards will be given. God will look at our life. Paul talks about this in, in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can, you can look that up maybe later if you want to read more about that. But the, the point is, we will give an account of our own actions. And so we, each and every one of us personally have to ask, why do I do what I do? Why do you do what you do? Is it based on just some prejudice or certain proclivity of yours or a, just a whim? Maybe you haven't even thought about it. Or do you act and decide with a desire to honor the Lord. And another thing I want to point out in just these few verses here is that given the, the immediate context of judging and condemning, we will give an account specifically for the judgment and contempt we cast upon our fellow believers. Right? We'll give an account for that. So I want to be very careful with the judgment or contempt that I happen to throw towards another believer. Now, another thing to notice here is that up until this point, um, Paul has been kind of vague. He, he's been saying um, the one who. He often says the one who does this, the one who does this, the one who does this. But now here, he says your brother, your brother. And it's almost like he's kind of drawing our attention into this fact that we are 
brothers and sisters in Christ. The person across from you, they are as much a part of the family as you are, and God is as much their father as he is yours. They're your brother. They're your sister. Let's keep moving. Now, longer section here. Uh, Romans 13 through, uh, chapter 14, verse 13 through 23, uh, all the way through here. I'll just read it, and then we'll come back and, and hit some, some key points. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, right? If you're going to judge, if you're going to decide something, decide this. Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, I know, <laughs> and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean goes against his conscience. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, right? Like if you regard this as good and it's causing a brother to stumble, well, then it becomes something that's not as good. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus ther- serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, dis- destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, if we were to stop at verse 12, Romans chapter 14, verse 12, if we were to stop there, we might get the impression that we're just supposed to kind of like avoid each other, <laughs> stay away from each other, not be involved in each other's lives. But, but the reality of chapter 14 verses 13 through the end of the chapter there, the reality is that we're supposed to move towards one another. We're supposed to be involved in one another's lives. We're supposed to have a hand in each other's walk. So uh, number four, last point. I've got a lot more to say, but this is just the last point. Um, God has called us to love and mutual edification. God has called us to love and mutual edification. And I wish we could spend time on breaking down every single one of these verses. But the the first thing I want to point out here is that we have an effect on one another. We have an effect on one another, more so than maybe you even realize. He uses the term of stumbling block, hindrance, right? So that's, uh, maybe I'm doing something and it's okay uh, for me, it's okay with my conscience, but if I'm causing another brother to fall into, into sin or temptation, well, then I need to take that into account, and I shouldn't do that. He uses stumbling block and hindrance. Uh, verse 15, for if a brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So we can grieve our brothers and sisters based on what we approve or disapprove of. Uh, last part of 15, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destruction, that's, that's kind of a heavy word. And then verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And then 
Um, I'm going to read all of verse 20. It says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything in is, is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, here's the thing. Here's the principle. Liberty, liberty is not the only consideration for personal conduct in the life of a believer. Say that again. Liberty, I can, is not the only consideration for personal conduct in the life of a believer. Liberty must be exercised in love. And that's what he's pointing out here. Liberty must be exercised in love. Can does not equal should in every circumstance. Verse 15, or sorry, chapter 15, verse 1. I'll touch on this too because it's a, it's a powerful verse. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That, that makes sense, right? But Paul's not going to exhort the weaker brother because the, it's, they're the weaker brother, right? They, they have a lot of growing to do. They have a lot of maturing to do. He's going to address the, the mature believer. I, I think of uh, my, my two kids. A lot of times, my exhortation when there's fighting, and that's really rare, um, when there's squabbles, is to my oldest, my, my four-year-old, just, I don't know what happened, just be the older sister is a lot of times my exhortation to her, right? Just be the older sister. I don't know what your, your little brother did. I don't care what he did. Um, figure it out. Be the older sister. Be an example to him, right? And show him, show him the way. And that's kind of the, the idea here. Be the older brother. Now, the tendency we have, though, depending on the issue at hand, depending on um, personal convictions that are out there, well, the tendency is to latch on to verses 13 through 23, divorced of verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12, we talked about not casting judgment, not despising one another, welcoming one another. But then in verses 13 through 23, he exhorts the older brother. And and sometimes we jump right into verse 13 through 23 and we use that to cram down uh, on, on other people what they should be doing, what they ought to be doing. This is not a grounds for the weak believer to demand others conform to his own conscience, right? It's, it's not. I'll give a few reasons for that. The first uh, is in verse 21. Verse 21, it says, it is, not good, uh, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, right? So Paul's not saying in every way, in, in every area, you know, you act according to the conscience of your brother. No, keep, keep between yourself and God. And then he says, blessed. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Look, if, you've, if you're understanding scripture and you're listening to your conscience and you're being led by the Holy Spirit, blessed are you. You have no reason to pass judgment on, on yourself for what you approve. Also, just reference 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, Paul deals with this issue too, uh, chapters 8 through 10 here, meat offered to idols and what do we do when there's questions of conscience. He handles it really well. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 28 through 30. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And Paul says this. He says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So Paul's saying there, look, look, yeah, it's one thing to consider one another and not put a stumbling block in front of another person, but my liberty isn't determined by someone's, someone's conscience in every way. The other thing I would say, if we, if we want to use verses 13 through 23 uh, to just say everyone has to obey my personal convictions, everyone has to obey my opinions on, on the matter, then, then what's the limiting principle? Like, like, where does that stop? As people come into the church with different opinions and, and different considerations and different convictions, uh, uh, do we all hold to that, right? There's, there's different opinions on women wearing pants, and there's different opinions on, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I keep naming things. But, but there, there are, and so are we, are, we, are we bound to the personal convictions of, of every person? Um, we are not. There has to be a limiting principle here. And also, I would say, don't miss what is implied by Paul's use of the term weak. Right? He says there are weak believers and there are strong believers. And, and what's implied is that the weak Christian grow. That's what's implied. The weak Christian should grow. Now, it's not saying that, oh, your convictions are wrong. You need to, you need to get rid of those and, and follow me. No, he tells us that that would be sin, to, to intentionally cause that person to go against their convictions. We meet them where they're at, but, but there's this implied sense of growing. They're, they're an immature believer, but we don't want them to stay that way. We want them to, to grow. Not that they have to adopt all of my personal convictions, but, but they need to grow in their faith. Now, growing up, I... Um, do you want to hear about my childhood? Is that okay? <laughs> um, where I most often heard the the term stumbling block was in the area of like like young ladies need to dress modestly so that they're not a stumbling block for for young men. You'd you'd hear that often. That's where I most often heard stumbling block. It was concerning young ladies and how they how they dress. Now the thought was that they ought to dress modestly because they there was potential for that to be a stumbling block to to young men. Fair enough, right? I think modesty is definitely a principle in Scripture, but, but what's on the other side of that equation? Is it just the girls that need to think about uh, not being a stumbling block? Well, the other side of that equation is, guys, you need to grow up, right? Young men, you need to learn how to be pure in your thoughts. You need to learn how to control where your eyes go, right? So there's two sides of that equation. I think we see that here in Scripture as well, right? When it's none of us telling the other person they have to do this, but there's both sides. It's, it's the strong brother approaching the situation in love, and it's the weak believer approaching the situation with grace as well, recognizing that I, I maybe need to grow in this area too. Verse 17. Oh, verse 17. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. My question that I asked myself this week was, what have I made the kingdom of God about? Right? What have I made the kingdom of God about? My personal convictions, my preferences, or even, even my liberty, my rights. Paul says here, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I, I don't even really know what that means exactly, right? 
or the kingdom of God is about joy. Like, sometimes I don't feel joyful. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, I'm serious. I'm being truthful about this. I don't really understand all of what that verse is, is trying to communicate. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. But what I do know is that in some way, I should be pursuing righteousness and peace and joy and not making the kingdom of God a matter of these, these other side issues. Then in verse 19, he says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I submit to you that that would be a great verse to put on a wall, <laughs> right? Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I want to close just by reading uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But Paul quickly goes into his, his prayer. In, in a sense, he's vision casting for the church. He's saying, this, would, this is what I want for you. This is what I want for your church. And, and you know, as I read this and study this and talk with Pastor Jim about this as well, like, this is, this is what we want for our church as well, right? So let's read chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We already covered that. But verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of the one who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now he kind of gets into his vision casting, his prayer here, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may be with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, there's a lot there. And uh, I know the tendency, the temptation would be for each of us to just latch on to what we already think, what we already believe, what we already know, and not to hear the exhortations in, in this text. Lord, no matter where we are on any issue, at any given topic, at any given time, Lord, there, is, there is room for us to grow. There is room for us to humble ourselves and to learn. But Lord, I, I pray that we would move towards one another, um, that we wouldn't be a, a church that is divided, but we would be a church that's unified in one voice for your glory, God, and based on the truth of Scripture. I ask this in your son's name, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.